the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Very important show today. Very important show. Um, We are going to talk in a few moments with my friend Todd Benzman and get an update on the border on what's happening. So you're going to want to stick around for that. Um, As always, he's important uh, in terms of giving us a perspective. And then also Adam Andrzejewski will join us. Adam is, of course, the founder of Open the Books. uh, uh, Open the Books dot org is dot com is the website uh his organization is a transparency uh policy institute and he's got some interesting news about uh dr fauci and the nih and patents and other things uh one thing about him I'm excited. His piece is at Newsweek.com, and he had been silenced by uh, Forbes. Forbes got annoyed with some of his writing because he wrote about Fauci, and so they uh, pushed him out. Um, so after, I think, eight years, and now he's back uh, on Newsweek. So very valuable guy. We'll talk with Adam in a minute. All right, but before that, what you need to know today, I just want to put a, um, I want to put some clarity on this. What you need to know is Nancy Pelosi is... Well, she's either lying, which it feels like she is, or she's just trying to distract people. She's trying to uh, throw you off the the path. Um, Here's how I want to do this. Let's see if I can do this and it makes any sense. I don't know if it will. Uh, But if you have an an organization that you start, and one of the things about the organization, that one of the main things is that you want to allow transgender uh, men who transgender into girls uh, to play girls' sports. And you say, I'm forming a club. And you can you can be in the club and we're going to ask that we're going to push policies and we're going to hold the belief that men can become girls for the purposes of transgender and play in sports. Okay, that's happening a bunch of places. If I said, well, I want to be a part of your group, I want to join, but I'm not going to hold that position. In fact, I'm going to publicly say that transgender boys who are acting like girls cannot play girls sports. If I did that, you wouldn't let me in the group. Now, it's simplistic to say this, but it is clear from every teaching, from Pope Francis, Pope John Paul II, pick a pope, that abortion is an intrinsic evil act because it's a killing of a person. Murder is also intrinsically wrong. The, the, the reason that abortion is so dramatic is because it's an innocent life, a defenseless life in a very particular way. And everybody agrees with that. If you want to belong to the Roman Catholic faith, that is a position. And if you publicly hold yourself out to say that abortion is fine up to nine weeks, uh, nine months in the, in the womb, as Nancy Pelosi does, if I'm the guy running my church, which is the San Francisco Archdiocese, I should be able to say, hey, you can't come in here and continue to take Communion and participate as if you're a part of this. Nancy Pelosi jumps up and says, no, no, no. But sometimes you let people take a communion who are against the church's teaching on something else. It's not intrinsically evil. 
what, like it is to take an innocent life. She brought up the death penalty, not intrinsically evil. The church's teaching is clear. Social justice, not intrinsically evil to not embrace the social justice solutions that Pelosi has. She knows this. And she's either lying about it, which it feels like she is, or she's really, really, really clueless. I think she's lying about it. But the fact is, we need more people that are willing to say, when it comes to an intrinsically evil act, the killing of an innocent baby, you can't be in this club. Good for that archbishop. And Nancy Pelosi's wrong. And that's, that's what you need to know. It's not, it's not even close. It's not even a close call. It's not a close call, not at all. All right, I got to run. We got a lot of show, a lot of show. We'll be back in a moment. Go to ProAmericaReport.com. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Time to go down towards the border and check in with our old friend, uh, the uh, great Todd Bensman, who is at the Center for Immigration Studies, CIS.org, CIS.org. He has uh, been helping us understand over the last uh, few months where we were headed. Well, it's May 23rd. We're the week here. We've got all kinds of things happening. But first of all, Todd, I think you predicted this might happen uh, pretty likely. The courts got involved in the title 42 um um the the it was not dissolution it was going to expire and not be renewed so tell us where we are in terms of title 42 and i i did hear a commentator say well it's not over because the biden administration's appealing so what's the timeline what what happened here well it was it was uh, expected uh, at least somewhat that a judge in louisiana as a trump appointed judge in 2018 uh, who was contemplating a challenge by 23 states, including Arizona, Missouri, and Louisiana, but right. also a bunch of other states, uh, who were arguing pretty much that, you know, this was going to have such an adverse impact on all of these states that it should be, uh, it should be paused. And the judge agreed that, you know, this was going to cause a tremendous adverse effect on all of these states with 18,000 people a day coming. And so there will be further litigation, uh, more, you know, uh, kind of, um, uh, you know, courtroom, uh, you know, combat. And eventually, though, uh, the Biden administration's appeal will probably be upheld because, you know, this is a temporary policy. It was always intended to be temporary policy for the pandemic. So whether it is in place, you know, in a few months or gets lifted in a few weeks, eventually it should get lifted unless Congress can figure out a way, which I don't see it happening at all, to legislate it. Congress is just simply too divided Right. Uh, Right. But on on the ground. Yeah. uh, It hardly matters because the reality is that thousands upon thousands of immigrants have pooled up on the other side waiting for this thing to lift. And a great not all of them are coming across, but so many are coming across that it's become very difficult in certain areas of the border for Border Patrol to even find the time and vehicles necessary to expel them back over the border. So they are allowing 
in on their own recognizance, you know, all Haitians, uh, people from non-contiguous countries, a lot of Central Americans, a lot of Venezuelans and Colombians, uh, people that are not easily, uh, that, that, that the Mexicans have decided that they're not going to take back, which could never happen under Trump. If the Mexicans said, we're not taking anybody back, <laughs> right. Trump would just say, well, we'll destroy your economy, your choice. Right, you know, so. right, right. right. Uh, well, we're talking with Todd Benzman. Let me pause and clarify just for our, our listeners that it's so many things going on. The Title yes. 42 provision was put in place as a temporary during COVID. It was invoked during COVID to say, hold on. We don't we're not going to let these more people in based on fear of COVID. I'm, I'm very simplifying. I know as it was getting ready to expire. Uh, uh, states said, um, wait a second, you did not change this law with enough thought for what it's going to do to our communities. Therefore, you didn't change it right. You didn't let it expire correctly. And the judge agreed with that. But as you point out, ultimately, the Biden administration has made clear they will let it expire um, as they as they wanted to. And it'll be done correctly so that states can measure the impact and prepare whatever that would be, whatever the timeline would be. So that's where we are now. The separate thing I did hear another commentator, Todd, say the same thing you did for months Everybody's been told south of the border, this is the magic time, end of May, come on up. And once you get a bunch of people up, they're going to do what they do, which is find ways to cross, find ways to pay to cross, find, you know, the, the cartels and the, and the traffickers are going to say, we'll, we'll, you know, here's a path, you know, pay us more. Um, it's, it'll be harder. And, and so we're not changing the problem. It, are we looking, though, at a humanitarian crisis? I hate to say this, but it, it if we looked like the the, uh, uh, you know, kind of um, uh, ultra magas who cried wolf because we said, look, there's going to be a crisis. Is there a crisis coming or are we now going to be in this sort of no man's land for a period of months where we still may see an uptick in the number crossing? But it won't be like it could have been if they really had opened the doors up. That's right. And actually, the judge, uh, the judge ruled and part of his ruling was that, you know, this was going to create a humanitarian crisis in multiple spots along the border as they come in and pile up. And so I think probably privately Biden administration officials are thanking their lucky stars and quite happy with this ruling because it gives them enough time to finish their preparations for what is to come. And the preparations, by the way, are not to stop block deter, repel, return, and all that kind of thing, so much as to add extra lanes to the one-way superhighway into the country to be able to process them, more of them in in greater numbers so that they don't have these big migrant camp things show up on the border, which are a terrible political liability and an eyesore and attract all kinds of media attention. Uh, So what they really want to do is make sure that nothing like the Haitian migrant camp of Del Rio happens again under this. So I think they're probably going to slow roll their appeal. You know, know, lawyers can lawyers can make this thing last a long time if they want. So in a way, people who are, you know, border hawks and don't want to see this thing happen, uh, you know, will will be happy to see a slow rolling by the Biden administration, but you're right. I mean, people are going to do what they're going to do down there. 
they're going to keep coming over. We're, we're at somewhere in the 9,000 a day range, which is historic. We had 234,000 apprehensions last month in April, uh, which is a, a, a historic, you know, record-breaking number. We've never had anything like that before, 220,000 the month before that. I mean, we're looking at like well over a million people have hit that border just in the first part of this year. We're not even at the halfway mark. Uh, wow. So we're going to be we're going to be seeing we're in a crisis without with Title Forty Two right in place. We're at right, a crisis right. of all historic breaking all historic records. Uh, we're talking with again with Todd Benzman, and if you go to uh, cis.org, the Center for Immigration Studies, you'll see a lot of coverage. His own writings there, also Mark Krikori and uh, and others uh, uh, on uh, on Steve Camerota, Camerota's on TV and uh, different things. But um, Todd. Uh, to put a fine uh, point on it, as you said, we're at a crisis anyway. Isn't really the most likely thing, even an observer of the policy as well as the politics, isn't the most likely scenario now it stays the way it is. You're still talking about seven, 8,000 a day coming across 9,000 a day through the election. And maybe um, there's enough of a sort of, oh, well, we're, you know, we're nothing dramatic has happened that what you heard was going to be dramatic on Fox News didn't happen. And so after the election, though, let's say Republicans win, they will not be able to pass anything without a Biden veto. And the executive branch will have the power to control or not control the border like they did. Is there is there any indication that they're changing their mind? No. Right. Well, I like to try to stay hopeful about that, but the truth is, is that to the extent that Democrats and in the and party apparatchiks were worried about, you know, the look of this mass migration event, it was the midterm elections in right. the context of like we're going to lose our butts on this, you know, right. if we've got you know all these people coming through, I mean. I don't really care if their motives are pure. That's democracy. That means they're worried about the voters and that's a good thing. Right. Uh, But I do fear that after the midterms, you know, like we're normalized, uh, the media won't cover it except for Fox news and guys like me um, that we just sort of like go on into the midterms. And after, after the, the, the midterms, you still have the white house in democratic hands and they've got two more years before they have to worry about another election. And so, uh, you know, uh, the worry is that they're, they're, they don't care anymore to stop anything, to, you know, halt it or uh, to put up impediments to. And we're just going to have another two years of this, which is going to put another city, you know, we'll end up with a city like the size of L.A. or something in the country because of it. Uh, or, or worse. Uh, we're talking with Todd Benzman um, and uh, Center for Immigration Studies. Go there. I'm looking at the website, Todd, and I, I won't I won't ask you about it, but there's analysis of how immigration impacts inflation, how it impacts lots of different things. It's important. But uh, one more question around the border, Todd. Again, um, you've watched this ebb and flow, the issue. I mean, you know, one of your things, you're an investigative reporter. You're not a politician. You're not you're, you're, you're looking at this saying, here's what the impact is. Here's what your policy preferences are doing. And and here's how that's playing out, Uh, whether it was Trump in the White House, Biden in the White House, uh, majorities in the House and Senate. I'm going back to the same sort of question, but uh, in a way. But 
Are you seeing uh, in the Republican Party, there's been a fairly dramatic shift in at least in the uh, language of the party to say we want to secure the border. We want to do it dramatically, whether you say build a wall or not, whatever. That's pretty dramatic from a lot of the people that were like, well, you know, we we let things go. It'll eventually immigration equals out. It's really good for us, et cetera, et cetera. No, people are like, hey, you see that border because of fentanyl, because of national security, like your book, because of the impact on our families, our jobs, et cetera. Is that switching the other party yet or is it not even moving? I mean, in other words, I did see some Democrats in leadership in, in, in leading positions, I think in Congress, certainly at the local level who in Texas who are saying, hey, wait a second, this isn't good for us. I have seen some in the Democratic Party who say, hey, this isn't good for us. African-Americans, on the other hand, they're not leading and they're not in the Biden White House. Well, give me just a minute to explain this. OK, um, what happened was the the Democratic Party traditionally has been fairly hawkish on the border. Uh, there's really no administration in recent memory on either party, either party that has, uh, you know, eliminated deportation or eliminated detentions uh, or done any of the or, you know, use the parole authority this widely and really done any of the radical, I, I would just say they're extreme policies, even it, by the standards of the Democratic Party. Uh, what you're seeing here is something that is really a one-off, unique, uh, extreme event where far-left progressive Democrats in that coalition got power over the immigration agenda and caused this to happen. But they did it with the compliance, the willful and winning compliance of all the major Democratic candidates and in the main Democratic Party platform. It's there. But I think that we're seeing a correction happen uh, because, you know, we we are seeing the exit of those progressive liberals from the White House. Six or seven of them have left now been forced out. And there's been some pretty good reporting by the um, New York Times and also the Wall Street Journal about this internal conflict over immigration inside the White House. And it looks like the pragmatists are starting to seize control back from these liberal progressives that they just somehow gave it all up to at the beginning. Uh, The question is whether that I'll be watching uh, is whether the the pragmatic Democrats in the White House, I'm thinking like Susan Price and Ron Klain, uh, chief of staff uh, and others in that are going to be able to turn the ship or if it's already too late that they've opened up these channels and they can't plug the dike anymore. Uh, So it'll be something that I'll be watching to see if they can kind of get a handle on it because they see grave political exposure in the 2024 election. If they don't get this thing turned around, they're just going to lose. I mean, we saw Donald Trump win on this issue in 2016. It's latent. And a lot of Democrats don't like what they're seeing down there. 
Well, and, and last point, Todd, and we went on really long. I love talking to you. I appreciate it. Todd Sorry. Benzman. No, no, no. I, I wanted the answer to the question. I wanted that whole thing. It was a great answer. I'll be honest with you. I'll probably cut that up and keep it because it's a really helpful way to understand it. Uh, we're talking with Todd Benzman, the author, investigative reporter, Center for Immigration Studies, CIS.org. All his stuff is worth reading. But, um, you know, the interesting thing I wonder about is, Todd, is that at the national level, it's certainly percolated. Right. But what you wonder is, as you watch this sort of school board anxiety and anger where you watch in Texas, they rolled a bunch of school boards uh, back from uh, the liberals and in place like either even San Francisco, they they went from far liberal to just regular liberal, I think, on the school board. And part of it is this dissatisfaction with CRT and sort of politicizing our students education and uh, to to have them feel guilty and hate each other and all. But part of it is, I think, uh, some celebration of our Americanness. And you meet more and more of our new immigrants. I'm thinking in St. Louis, where I, you know I'm most familiar, Vietnamese Americans that have been here for 30 years, 40 years, Bosnian Americans have been here for 20, Hispanic Americans who came legally or, or otherwise, and they're they're part of America. They're not particularly enamored with this liberal CRT division. They're like, hey, we came because we knew if you work hard and you make yours, you can have a good life. It's going to be interesting if the if the issues of the open border and all it symbolizes can uh, percolate down to where it's not, you know, the, the, the county council doesn't control immigration, but the people feel that and they feel the the, the sides you're on in in uh, when you're running for office. It's going to be interesting to see if that impact. I don't know. Do you have a do you have an instinct or you're seeing it in places yet? Yes. Uh, on the border in Texas, you know, those are. Hispanic, Mexican-American precincts, they have always voted Democrat. Those are blue precincts down there in living memory. But in 2020, a bunch of them went red for the first time ever. And when I went down there to find out what that was all about, they uh, told me, I was told over and over again that they just hated the mass migration that had been happening the year before and the Democratic response to it. All of the candidates were vying with one another, the Democratic primary candidates vying with one another about who was going to be the most open, who was going to do more of that, who was going to. And so those people did it the legal way. They did it the right way, and they expect others to do it the right way, too. And they're voting Republican down Mm -hmm. there for the first time, which is important nationally. Those precincts are important nationally because Texas is kind of getting a little purple. And with the electoral votes that Texas has, I live here in Texas. So Uh um, those precincts down there, keep it, keep Texas red. Hmm. Uh, So, it's yeah. going to be interesting to see the, the, uh, that a lot of people are talking about the realignment of the of the of the parties on issues and all in the in the fall of 2020. I think it's going to be interesting to see at the local level how, how that plays out, because it's partly the it's just partly a perception, a feel of who's on your side is what people get. A lot of times when you're running for state rep or uh, county council. All right, Todd, we got to run. Todd Benzman, as always, CIS.org. Thank you for being down there and giving us uh, the uh, sense of the border and what's happening. Appreciate it very much, Todd. Thanks for having me. All right, we'll take a break, everybody, and be right back. Don't forget, these great interviews are over. I've got Todd on probably six or eight times in the last six months over at uh, ProAmericaReport.com. Go there and listen to all of them, and you'll be educated uh, on these issues. We'll take a break and be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Back in a moment.
Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Time to check in with my old friend. He is the uh, author. I was going to say, sorry, author of a piece. Uh, we desperately need more accountability from NIH, uh, which came out just a few days ago. Adam Andrzejewski is the CEO and founder of OpenTheBooks.com. OpenTheBooks.com. If you go there, we'll talk in a moment about some other things you can search for. But Adam, uh, welcome back. How are you? Great to be on the program, Ed. Thank well, you for having me on. Glad to have you now. But hold on. I thought, who did you get knocked off of? Uh, you, you were published for a long time, had a column. Oh, it was Forbes. And Forbes got sort of woke, right? And you got bumped off of that or whatever you did. Uh, and, and now Newsweek is putting you up. So you're, you're not, I'm glad to, I'm being serious. I'm glad to see that you're finding ways to get your voice out. That's, uh, I'm pleased with that. Well, we're going to do 500 investigations here in 2022. And, you know, although I was at Forbes for nearly eight years, we published 206 investigations there for tens of millions of views. When I fact found Fauci's finances, that got me sideways with Forbes. The National Institutes of Health, they came down hard on Forbes. Forbes got the message. They came down hard on me. I never published another column after I published on Dr. Anthony Fauci's finances. Wow. Wow. Well, good for Newsweek that they're happy. Newsweek.com will put it up on social media. So tell me what you found here. We, I mean, or tell me what you're, I guess, coming into this, you're basically, I, I don't think you're, yeah, I read, I read quickly, but you're not saying, hey, they silenced me over there. I'm over here. But you are saying, hey, there's some things to get to the bottom of here, right? Tell us about it. Well, we came out with an investigation on the royalty payments at the National Institutes of Health. I think during the pandemic, all of us felt in our gut that big government was very close to big pharma. And with this investigation, we're actually able to show you how large the complex is. So every year we know the National Institutes of Health, they dole out $32 billion in grant making. And then now we know flowing the other way, coming back through the other door, are in a 10-year period, $350 million, we estimate, of third-party paid, think pharmaceutical company, royalty payments back into the National Institutes of Health and 1,700 of its scientists, including leadership, like the former director, Francis Collins, like Dr. Anthony Fauci, his deputies, other executives. So every single one of these payments could be a potential conflict of interest. Uh, we're talking with Adam Andrzejewski again, openthebooks.com. So do you think, But I mean, I can't believe it. I'm asking you in a way that I'm, when I read it, I was like, it must be. Are these, are the individuals getting a salary from the government and then getting paid again by the money coming back in? I mean, is it bonuses for uh, scientific breakthroughs? Is it, uh, is it patents they actually did that somehow they're splitting? I mean, if you work for, if you work for a big company and you come up with something, unless you have a particular type of deal ahead of time, you're not going to be the one that holds that patent. You may have your name on it. You may, but, but you're generally not going to be the one who benefits from it. Um, what is the, uh, what, what, what's happening here? Well, you're exactly right on all of that. So let's unpack that entire um, narrative that you just described. So the government scientists have a special deal. Private sector scientists don't get this. If you work for a pharmaceutical company, if you come up with a great discovery, the company gets the royalty payment on that drug, not not the scientist. That's not the same thing at the in the National Institutes of Health for the federal government. If if a scientist that works for the government has a has a invention or a co-invention, then they're in for a pro rata distribution of the royalty payments 
up to $150,000 a year. So we know that Fauci, he's the number one most highly compensated federal employee. He out-earns the president. He makes $456,000. Well, from our, our data here on royalties, we also know he's in collecting royalties as well on top of his salary. But here's the deal, Ed. National Institutes of Health, even though this was production subject to our lawsuit, they are, and I can see the top line, so I know how much in the aggregate is flowing back, about $350 million over 10 years. And I know the names of the scientists because they're disclosed. 1,700 scientists are in there, including the leadership like we discussed. The NIH is redacting, they're blanking out the payments to the individual scientists, and they're also redacting, erasing the names of the third-party payers. Think Big Pharma. So we know the top line, we know the names of the scientists, but I can't tell you who specifically is receiving how much, and I can't tell you who's paying the royalty. Well, okay, uh, Adam Anjewski, uh, openthebooks.com, uh, but let me say it again now because I can't believe it. What you're saying to me is if I'm in the NIH and I'm a scientist, and I'm, we don't begrudge somebody, let's say that they're top-level scientists, they got a great government pension, they got a great government salary, they probably work hard. I don't want to begrudge wor- government workers, but they definitely get their vacation. They, you know, They definitely are getting the federal holidays. But now because of the way the laws are set up, Uh, let's say they're doing research on X topic and X topic is of interest to Y company, private sector. If they work with Y company and let's say they give Y company a bunch of money to go and do it like a grant, here's a grant of a a hundred million dollars for you to go do this research. In fact, Y company comes to me and says, Hey, if you give us this money over here, we're going to work on this and you can be a co-inventor and you'll get money for that. And that would be legitimate in an in in ordinary, I mean, let's pretend that I'm going to actually help on the research. Your point there is, how is that not a conflict of interest, right? It has to be a conflict of interest if the same people that are, are, are greenlighting tens of billions with a B dollars for research then get to be co-inventors, even if they did earn it. I'm not saying they don't. Let's pretend they did earn it, earn the status. They're going to benefit. How is it not a conflict of interest? That, that's the basics, right? Absolutely. Ed, you understand this issue very well. So the last time that this database, this royalty database had transparency was 17 years ago when the Associated Press filed a Freedom of Information Act request for it. And that was 2005. And the exact scenario you just described was actually what was uncovered with Dr. Anthony Fauci. And it was a big scandal in 2005. So here's what happened. Dr. Anthony Fauci received $45,000, according to the Associated Press, in royalties because of an experimental AIDS uh, drug that he had co-invented. The Associated Press also found that the United States taxpayer funded that development of the drug with $36 million. So Fauci's on as a co-inventor. He's receiving royalties. He's the head of the National Institutes of allergies and infectious diseases in an executive position able to direct grants, $36 million of taxpayer money into this. But that's not even the end of the story. Even after it was developed, they continue to put taxpayer money into the development of this drug to enhance it further. The whole thing was a conflict of interest. Fauci admitted as much, said he was concerned about it, and said he would donate his 
his royalties to charity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just who with what proof, right? Yeah. 17 years later, no scrutiny. We don't know if that's going on. But here's the deal. Francis Collins said he wouldn't donate his, his royalties to charity. And Fauci's deputy said he wouldn't donate his royalties either. Uh, we're talking to Adam Anjewski, by the way, I went back while we're searching in your in your column. You can link through to the AP story from uh, January 11, 2005. Here's the opening line. Two of the U.S. government's premier infectious disease researchers are collecting royalties on an AIDS treatment. They're testing on patients using taxpayer money. But patients weren't told on their consent forms about the financial connection. Yet another aspect of this that is, uh, you know, if you're doing experiments on people with government money and people don't I mean, this is one of the things you have to do. You, you read a you read a medical journal article and you have to have that. The, the authors have to put down, you know, uh, their conflicts of interest. It's insane. Um, Adam, I, I broadly question. I want to pull back for a second. I've told you before, when I, I worked for a governor, Matt Blunt in Missouri, we started a transparency portal. Um, uh, and and I found that that's the most powerful tool for accountability is just transparency. Don't debate whether it's good or bad. I don't know whether that AIDS drug was good or bad. I just know if you do transparency, you start to say, huh, who's compromised in terms of judgment? And either how do we make it so we are clear we're not allowing people to be compromised, you know, appearance is reality, or two, if they're really compromised, then change it. And I tell you, when I worked for uh, the governor, and I was actually telling this story, Adam, to uh, Doug Mastriano, the, the guy who's running for Pennsylvania governor, and I was telling him about working for Governor Blunt. One of the things we discovered, and I know it's in your stuff uh, on OpenTheBooks.com, was Planned Parenthood was getting money throwing, flowing through Missouri until we went transparency where we could see everything and have actually citizens help us search the database and find things and highlight it. We didn't really know. I mean, so pulling back, uh, it, I know you've said it is on the move, but are, are we seeing transparency as one of the tools that everybody's using because just about now we're going to have maybe the Republicans get back some power. And you, I want that to be true that they actually do the transparency. I'm not sure that I see the will amongst Republicans. Well, typically, you know, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, politicians in general, they run on the issue of transparency because it's a 99% issue. It's popular with the American people. Once they're elected, they then run away from it. That's been our experience. Now, look, it's uh, it's a winning issue uh, in a state like Pennsylvania, which could go either either left or right. The uh, the issue, uh, you know, look, if you the issue of transparency properly uh, orients people to the government, government oftentimes nowadays, they think we work for them. Right. If we expose their spending, then it properly sets up the culture and dynamic in a state that they work for us. We get to review them. That's the way the American experiment is supposed to work. We have individual liberty. We instituted the government to secure our rights. Therefore, we get to audit everything they do. And in the absence of that, the system's upside down. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. Exactly right. Well, Adam, listen, thank you. I'm I'm very uh, pleased that uh, you're over at Newsweek.com because I I also I know um, your team is effective at when you write a column like this one. The title, again, is We Desperately Need More Accountability from NIH. Uh, Adam Anjewski, you're good at promoting it and getting it out there. People will hear it and read it and see it. And so thank you for taking the time and all you're doing. And uh, we wish you all the best. Thank you, Ed. 
All right. We'll take a break, everybody. And I'll put it up on social media. I'll put the links up to his column, uh, also to their website. And there's a million. If, you, if you're a good government uh, type and you want to do this, you can, you can have, uh, uh, spend hours on the openyourbooks.com, openthebooks.com, and uh, go ahead and, and see what you can find. So we'll take a, a quick break. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily commentary continuing the conservative pro-family legacy of Phyllis Schlafly. Now, here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. As Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson sat before the Senate Judiciary Committee, she was asked a number of softball questions. The vast majority of these easy inquiries came from Democrats. But the softest of all softball questions came from Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee. Blackburn simply asked, Can you provide a definition of the word woman? This should have been easy to answer for the one who was touted as being the first black woman nominated to the Supreme Court. Any five-year-old child can tell you the difference between a man and a woman. Yet, shockingly enough, the confused Jackson replied that she could not define what a woman is because she's not a biologist. Like the confused Judge Jackson, the perpetually confused President Joe Biden can't tell the difference between boys and girls either. At a special press conference, Biden pledged that the federal government would affirm boys who claim to be girls and girls who claim to be boys, which is a condition that is medically known as gender dysphoria, but more commonly referred to now as transgenderism. Everyone across the political spectrum agrees that people suffering from gender dysphoria are incredibly likely to suffer from depression or exhibit suicidal tendencies. The heart of every compassionate American should go out to these afflicted people. Yet we don't always agree on the best way to help them. Conservatives believe that they need counseling to help them overcome their mental illness. Liberals think we should mutilate their bodies to make them look like pale imitations of what their confused minds project. The cross-sex hormones and surgeries required to do this often cause irreversible damage. Even worse, transgender people who have these surgeries are 20 times more likely to commit suicide than those who don't. That fact comes from a study by Dr. Paul McHugh, the former psychiatrist-in-chief at Johns Hopkins. Meanwhile, the Biden administration endorses these surgeries using faulty research conducted by groups funded by the very companies making money off the surgeries. Let's end the charade. We all know what a woman is. And the most compassionate thing we can do to those afflicted with gender dysphoria is to tell them the truth. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report with Ed Martin, president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. These culturally relevant commentaries, along with videos, columns, and bulletins, are waiting for you at phyllisschlafly.com. That's phyllisschlafly.com. Plus, find, follow, and share our news and views on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Parler, Gab, and Twitter. Thanks for listening, and join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Hey, great to have our great friend Adam Andrzejewski, OpenTheBooks.com on the show. Also, uh, uh, his website is awesome and his column is great. We're really, uh, I'm really excited that he is uh, doing as well as he is and, and there's so much going on. Also, Todd Benzman, thank you for that uh, lengthy interview. Hey, um, I want to finish by pointing out to you, uh, it's kind of important. It's not kind of, it is important. Um, and I want to set this up. I, I was out visiting some friends in uh, Missouri. 
And one of them said to me, Ed, how can it be that we have so much money going to all of these, uh, all of these, uh, to Ukraine, $40 billion, Biden asked for $33 billion. By the time it was done, Congress gave him $40 billion. And all the press is on, uh, you know, uh, how important this was. And very little coverage of the fact that Rand Paul, among others, said, hey, wait a second, what are we going to do to keep track of this money? $40 billion with a B. And I said, look, understand something. The, the, the machine of war, um, it, it, it's, it costs a lot of money. And so there's lots of people that are going to benefit from $40 billion. You don't think that the Ukrainians are spending $40 billion in the Ukraine, do you? They're spending it on weapons, buying from the Americans, buying from the Israelis, buying from others. So, but here's a great thing. Um, there's a, 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 about 20 members, 20 plus members of Congress, led by uh, Congresswoman Yvette Harrell. I never heard of her name before, but she's a Republican from New Mexico. And she, along with, I guess it's almost two dozen House Republicans, sent a letter to the Biden White House saying, hey, if you're going to give him this money, let's have some accountability. Let's have some accountability on this money. If we're going to send them billions, shouldn't we have accountability? Good for her. Good for her. I, I mean, I can't believe that it's a minority of the Republican Party. I, I bet it isn't. But I mean, when you're in the minority in the um, in the House, you can't do anything except yell at the top of your lungs. And then, you know, you get voted down. That's the way the majority works. And so Speaker Pelosi's in charge. But it's good that these folks uh, over almost 25 members of the House are sending this letter out saying, hey, what about accountability? What about some kind of mechanism to track the money? You know, we need more transparency at every level of government. And what I just heard Adam Andrzejewski say, which is so true, is people run on transparency because it's such a good issue. And then they get in office and they come up with an excuse. Oh, well, uh, national security, there's a war on, blah, blah, blah. We need transparency, radical transparency in our, in our, um, in our America, in our society, so that we can trust the government. Because right now, most of us don't trust the government. More transparency. All right, we got to run. Thank you, as always, Noah Dingley, our great producer, Joanna Spilger, our associate producer. We will be back tomorrow. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro America Report. Talk to you then. This is the Pro America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Three star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to, he understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.